0: Something we been curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3,
1: 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP Nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal.
2: Nominal.
3: nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, it's November, and, well, it's nearly the end of the year already, and it's, it's difficult to believe. So uh, I think we should just get things rolling, and uh, I'll turn up the fader and bring in Mr. Burger. How are you doing? Oh,
1: it's hard to come up with, with different things every time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, John, I know you've been doing a lot with your uh, 3D printer recently.
1: I've been having fun burning through plastic. Well, Okay, literally not... Burning, melting through plastic. Maybe. Did you ever get your spinach? I'm about halfway now. You're missing out on so much fun, my friend.
3: I know. It's just the thingy of uh, f- <laughs> finding the time to put it together. But uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 getting there. <laughs> it's
1: getting there. Yeah, I just spent the past month or so going crazy. Th- this is unfortunately one of my problems. I've got so much on my plate, but then something new will come along and I focus on that. Totally forgetting of all, all the other stuff that I've got on my plate. <laughs> it was like, Sony came out and they announced their new PlayStation Classic, in the same vein as the Nintendo NES and the Super NES, their little minis. Yeah. So Sony decided, hey, we're gonna have one too, which, okay, fine, whatever. And so they're doing it for the original PlayStation, and then I saw the price. The Nintendo ones were 80 bucks a piece. Okay, that's, eh, all right, maybe. Sony wants a hundred bucks for theirs. And I was just like, um, you know what? This is about time for me to start looking at a RetroPie, which is the, the retro console emulators that run on a Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. And I looked and with all of the hundreds and if not thousands of various Raspberry Pi cases out there, I could find none that were actual to scale with the PlayStation. You could tell that the other ones, you know, the Raspberry Pi, if you look at it from the top, it looks like a credit card. It's about a credit card size. It's tiny. That's one of the appeals to it. And so people were making these these cases for 3D printing that looked like the PlayStation, but they were fitting it to the Raspberry Pi's form factor. I was just like, no, I don't want that. I want something that actually looks like the PlayStation and I couldn't find it, so I made it. It took me a long time, did it from scratch, used Tinkercad, actually I didn't use Fusion 360 for it, but took me a while to do it, but I finally, after going through at least an entire spool of practicing and, and you know tweaking and so forth, I finally got a little Sony PlayStation that is scaled down to Raspberry Pi size. You just stick the Raspberry Pi in the back corner and close it up and it looks like a PlayStation. Cool. It's one of those things where it's like, I've got really bad on the detail. <laughs> I mean, bad is in very picky. If you've ever looked on the side of it, it's got these little ridges, just I guess for texture more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I counted how many ridges were there and made sure to get that identical because I'm stupid. And even the underside, it has a whole bunch of these small little oval vents and so forth. And I replicated all of those and I replicated the, the feet. <laughs> I went too crazy on this, but you look at the damn thing and it looks like a PlayStation. You know, obviously small, it's about you know, one fourth the size of the
3: real one, but you just stick a raspberry Pi in the back of it and off you go. This one that um, Sonya brought out, the, the games on it are pretty lousy. <laughs>
1: Well, the problem is a lot of those games
3: that really made the PlayStation what
1: it is, they've already been released in other forms like the Tomb Raiders and a lot of the Square Enix games. They've already been released on things like Steam, so they're not going to give them away or or whatever, you know, uh, license them to, to Sony to distribute with this little console when they're already selling them on their own you know you can play the original tomb raider on steam looks like crap obviously compared to modern day games but you can play them so they've they've been selling their library and how many others out there really helped to define PlayStation, you know, even um, Spyro the Dragon or something like that. Yeah, Spyro was one of them. Spyro, that just got re-released for the PlayStation in a remixed form. It's now on HD for the PlayStation 4.
3: And obviously Crash Bandicoot, that's another one that's been kind of re-released and stuff. It's not like they really had a choice on that one. I was actually more surprised when uh, the
1: the Commodore 64, they did the same thing, jumping on the whole bandwagon. Their initial list of games was just like, ugh. Really? But somehow, they actually managed to get a bunch of Epics games available for it, which surprised the hell out of me, because, I mean, Epics was like one of the top programmers for the 64. Their games were awesome. Somehow, between the original notice of the launch and the actual release of the Commodore 64 Mini, or whatever you want to call it, they were able to pull some of those titles in. So I was more excited for that than I was over what I'm seeing with the PlayStation. But, you know, at least this way you throw a Raspberry Pi in, and I do have the ASUS Tinkerboard on order. It should be here by the end of this week, but whatever. Supposedly, it will fit the exact same area that a Raspberry Pi will fit, and that's 1.8 gigahertz versus the Raspberry Pi's 1.2. So that should be able to play some of the newer games. That's cool. It's just one of those little things where spite kicked in, and I really don't know that I'm gonna play any retro games on it, but once it got to the point of, okay, I started working on this, I want to finish it. My spite shield went up. I'm like, no, screw you, Sony. I am going to build this thing. And I've released it. It's up on Thingiverse. I also put it up on my mini factory, but they haven't approved it yet. I put it up four days ago as we record this. It's already had over 300 downloads. Wow. Yeah. So people are looking at this one. Yeah, that, that was my recent must-get-done pet project.
3: I saw some of the photographs that you were putting up of it and uh, I thought, yeah, this is looking good.
1: Yeah, I got really specific on that one. Probably more than needed, but whatever. (laughs) Tinkercad made it easy. It was fun. It was fun.
3: Next step is let's uh, see what it's like when it's up and running.
1: (laughs) They kind of make it seem like, oh, well, you know, you just download it, throw it onto an SD card, make sure you have the controller plugged in and off you go. And it's like, yeah, no, no, because it's got Linux underneath... If you really want to tweak it and you really want to work with it, or if you run into any issues, you got to know the command line. Remember how, like, WordPerfect 5.1, you'd try to install it, and it would be a blue background with an ASCII-based window and, like, a little drop shadow around the edges and so forth with white text? Yeah, yeah. That's what the RetroPie menus are like. Oh, wow. It just smacks of the old DOS days. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's not as clean as a setup as you might think. But I'm working
3: on it. We'll see what happens. Cool. So today's show is going to be a space show. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about. But there's a couple of things we wanted to just quickly talk about. Not space related. Well, technically they are and they're not. Basically, we've lost a a couple of people recently, and it's because of the kind of podcast that we are, it only seems right to just mention um, Mm -hmm. these people. And the first one is a guy called Douglas Rain. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but you'll definitely be familiar with this guy's voice because he played Hal in 2001.
0: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
3: That's a voice that will haunt you for forever. <laughs> but, hmm. uh, yeah, unfortunately, he died uh, recently. I mean, he had a good innings. I mean, he was 90. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's done a lot, not just being known for 2001 on Space Odyssey, but... He was involved in a lot of Shakespearean stuff, so he, right. was, he was a proper actor. Proper, if, if you're involved in Shakespeare stuff, you're a proper actor. <laughs> uh, and he actually organised a festival in Canada because he was Canadian, and it was called the Stratford Festival. Well, Stratford is based around Stratford-upon-Avon where uh, Shakespeare came from and he was also nominated for a tony award in 1972 so he's, he's had a, a pretty good career to be honest with you but it is sad when someone with a voice that pretty much everyone who's a geek will know and uh, obviously the one that's hit everybody oh yeah is stanley I think every other post on my Twitter feeds and uh, what to do with Stan Lee.
1: Twitter and Facebook just got flooded.
3: I mean, he was 95.
1: Oh, he had a great run, and he was so popular recently. Yeah. With all of his cameos and so forth. And from what I understand, he he does have a couple more cameos already filmed for the next few Marvel movies. That's going to feel awkward.
3: It's going to feel as awkward, I think, as seeing Carrie Fisher actually after you know after the occurrence and that hit home Yeah. <laughs> when you saw her in the last jedi uh, and well it didn't hit me so much with that it was just that little moment at the end where it says you know in loving memory of our princess mm-hmm. that was that was the that hit <laughs> and i yeah. think it's going to be the same with stan lee I, th- I think at least six cameo appearances he's got left i think they said so yeah and you know when you hear some of the interviews that he gave about just doing things that you love doing, you know if you don't love doing what you do, then it's not worth doing it. and um, you know a lot of that inspirational talk is is a brilliant pep talk for anybody in any walk of life. And um, and that's the reason why he was loved as much as he was. Um, and, and a lot of people were inspired by him. You, you name a comic book artist that probably wasn't in, inspired by Stan Lee. I mean, um, he was mm-hmm. doing things when comic books were shunned. You know, as, as a cultural reference, it was something that kids did. You, you weren't supposed to throw any money at it because it was only for kids. And he changed that he changed the way the world saw comic books
1: well he even had a a quote on that i used to be embarrassed because i was just a comic book writer while other people were building bridges or going on to medical careers and then i began to realize entertainment is one of the most important things in people's lives without it they might go off the deep end i feel that if you're able to entertain people you're doing a good thing yeah so even he came around to realize hey you know what yeah i do comic books but comic books are important Mm -hmm. they're really important
3: to a lot of people my friend Ian Hine from Dark Universe Comics um, Mm -hmm. you've you've heard me talk about them in the past and different events that they do he actually had a beer with Stan Lee and they spoke for about half an hour about comics and stuff and I thought to myself how lucky you were (laughs) that would have been amazing Ian knows his stuff about comics, and to be in that room when that conversation was taking place would have been just, oh wow. There's so many different TV shows and things that he's mentioned in, or he's appeared in, and um, it's difficult to believe that he's not with us anymore, but...
1: (sighs) Well, you know, it's one of those things that you know it's going to happen to all of us eventually. You try to prepare yourself for it. It's like, it's going to happen anytime soon. And then it does happen. And it's like, I'm not ready for this.
3: I've seen posts that say, now that's all of their childhood icons mm-hmm. no longer with us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got a few out there that are hanging on and I'm dreading it when it happens. But um, yeah. Nostalgia is a a weird thing Um, It has its good sides And it's got its bad sides as well Um, And you know you just got to remember the good times
0: I cannot tell you How much I love my fans They Sometimes At night I'm sitting here And I'm thinking uh, What's it all about You know And then I Get a letter from a fan or I read something or I see something or I remember something and I realize it's so lucky to have fans, fans who really care about you and that's the reason I care so much about the fans because they just, they make me feel so great and there's something, if you think about it, that is wonderful about somebody caring about you as I care about them, whom you've never met, who may live in another part of the world, but they care and you have something in common and occasionally you contact each other. And this business of fans, I think it's terrific. And I love them all.
3: His legacy will live on for, well, forever. Yeah. As as long as people still want superheroes, Stan Lee's legacy will, will always be there. Yep. Right, so let's take a short break. And when we come back, let's get all spacey.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, The journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the Red Planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov.
3: Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their...
0: My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. Has
3: dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure.
0: I became Buzz. Destination: the moon. He looked back at the Earth and watched it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested. Over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, An Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th (laughs) bowl. Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us, and the world around us includes way beyond. Don't get in here, go for landing, over. I do thing. go for landing. Roger 1202, we copy you. We're go, same time, we're go. OK, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Terrible view. Magnificent desolation. The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. This is TGP Nominal.
3: So, welcome back to TGP Nominal. Now, obviously, we'd start talking about some space-related news and all kinds of stuff as we go along. The first story I've got is something that we've both kind of involved with because we've both got certificates to say that we're involved with this mission. (laughs) Baby. Now, this is the Parker Solar Probe, which was a mission to, as they say in inverted brackets here, touch the sun. (laughs) It's got nearer to our star than any previous human-made object it's past the current record of 42.73 million kilometers or 26.55 million miles from the sun's surface the previous record was set by the german us helios 2 satellite back in 1976 that mission also set an all-time speed record of close to 70 kilometers a second. Parker is about to smash that as well. Mhm. <laughs> yes it is. The expectation is that it will eventually peak at speeds of around 190 kilometers a second. That's 690,000 kilometers an hour. <laughs> Or 428,700 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. That's just (laughs) staggering to think about. Gravity. (laughs) Now... Parker was launched from Earth in August and it's on a trajectory that will take it inside the Sun's outer atmosphere, otherwise known as the Corona. Information from this region promises to crack long-standing mysteries about our star's behaviour. Parker's elliptical orbit will edge closer to the Sun over the coming years, and its closest approach, the probe will get just 6.12 million kilometres, that's 3.83 million miles from the star's surface and I, I mm-hmm. do mean that broiling it's hotter than boiling
1: <laughs> yeah, well yeah I mean 1400, <laughs> 1400 degrees celsius
3: <laughs> the star is constantly bombarding the Earth with charged particles and magnetic fields this perpetual flow or solar wind is responsible for generating the beautiful auroral lights that appear in polar skies some of the interactions initiate more troubling effects it pretty much devastates anything that's electrical so yeah, communications, satellites will knock off line power grids it's pretty dangerous stuff And uh, obviously, we want to forecast when these storms are going to happen. So it's going to be very similar to when they're trying to predict when hurricanes and things are going to take place. So hopefully, the information that we get from the Parker Probe will do this. As we just mentioned, the corona is uh, is a remarkable place. It's strangely hotter than the sun's actual surface, or uh, the photosphere, as that's called. This can be uh, about 6,000 degrees. The outer atmosphere may reach temperatures of a few Million degrees. Oh man! The the mechanisms that produce this superheating are not fully understood. Likewise, the corona is a place where solar wind gets the big kick in speed, sweeping out across the solar system at more than five hundred kilometers a second, a million miles per hour. Mm. The Parker aims to solve these puzzles by directly sampling the corona's particle, magnetic, and electrical fields. So, it's breaking records all the time. This thing is moving. Hopefully, it can help us solve some of these puzzles that the sun creates.
1: Yeah. Well, at least we have a good first step because it's already done its first sweep. That was, yeah. a, that was a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. It took about two days for it to finally get back to NASA and say, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> the temperatures that thing has to put up with is
3: amazing. Yeah, a few million degrees. Million! You can't even contemplate that, can you? It's No. I mean, that's just... <laughs>
1: We know how hot boiling water is, for crying out loud, and then to go so many times beyond that.
3: You've only got to look at some of the, the, the rockets, and when you get the stage separation, and you can see that it's white hot, and you can see how hot that is. Yeah. And this just blows that away. The actual materials that this probe are made from, to be able to withstand that kind of temperature is just unbelievable. Uh, It makes me wonder what the hottest temperature is that any man-made object has
1: ever been able to withstand. And and then to say, this hopefully will survive past a million degrees. It's mind-boggling. Do we even have the capability of generating something that hot on the planet? Even with like a a thermonuclear bomb? I'd have to look that up. Ooh, ooh, hold on, hold on. Temperatures of a nuclear explosion reach those in the interior of the sun about 100 million degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm wow okay that i did not know okay i was not aware that we could make things that hot but hey you know what so what parker is still amazing and mm-hmm. it's obviously had a good first pass so hopefully the rest
3: will be just as good yeah and hopefully it'll help us deal with these communication blackouts that we have and all the other bad stuff that happens during uh, space weather. I suppose you can call it space weather, isn't it? It's yeah. It's uh,
1: Well, I just read something.
3: I didn't read the article. I just saw the
1: headline. That supposedly back in the 1970s, a solar flare actually detonated some old bombs like that, that were in the ocean. I have to look it up again. I, I just saw it. I thought, what? I need to check that back later, and I never did. Oh, here it is. And it, that article just came out yesterday. Massive solar storm detonated hidden American bombs during the Vietnam War, according to
3: the Navy records. So it makes you <laughs> think, how hot does it actually have to be to set these things off?
1: Well, I mean, th- in that case, it was probably just some kind of electrical particles. Like, yeah, probably ask. some magnetic disturbances. Yeah. Sun has definitely got a lot of mysteries that we'll, we'll never see solved in our lifetime, but at least this is a good first step. Okay. <laughs> All right, what well, you got there, John? Oh, some things with the James Webb. That's turning into an interesting little situation. Well, the good side is that both halves of the, the Webb telescope can successfully communicate with each other. That was one of the risk reduction tests that they had. So now they know that things are at least able to talk to each other. That's a good sign. So, you know they're still hoping for a launch in 2020 but apparently it's been made quite clear that nasa needs to learn from the mistakes of the james webb space telescope and not do this stuff again an independent review board decided that the mission went a quote-unquote step too far for the agency speaking at a, a meeting of the committee on astronomy and astrophysics for the national academy's space studies board <sighs> Tom Young said that while the mission may ultimately be a success, its difficulties provide lessons as NASA considers future missions. Said that uh, I personally have come to the conclusion that the JWST had too many inventions, too much risk, and was a step too far. So basically, they packed too much in there. Said that there are a group of people who are diehard supporters and there are others who support it, but they're really angry at the cost growth and the schedule delays. My assessment is that JWST will be supported. I don't think that there will be any issue in this whole political process that something bad will happen, but there could be collateral damage to other NASA programs as a result of this. So he said that I know that we're embarking right now on missions that could make JWST look small by comparison. I would say that the next decadal should wrestle with that problem, the decadal being the financial schedule they kind of make for the next decade, what projects they want to fund, how much they're going to cost, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, JWST is ruffling a little little bit of feathers in a way. So, they came up with 32 recommendations for NASA to implement regarding the JWST, ranging from identifying embedded problems, whatever that's meant to mean, its testing, and as well as the final assembly. Apparently, they currently don't have a whole bunch of say regarding the Ariane 5 that it's gonna launch on. So apparently they are getting a lot of pushback on that one regarding how much oversight they'd be allowed to have regarding the Ariane 5 launch. Apparently they're trying to get a bit more on that one, which makes sense, it's their satellite. I would expect that if anyone who would say, yes, our satellites are going to launch on NASA or SpaceX, I would expect them to have some more oversight because it's, well, it's their satellite. Kind of expected that one.
3: My other concern with that is that um, by the time that it actually launches, they may have phased out the Ariane 5.
1: I would think with something this high profile, and NASA's already being criticized for this, I can't imagine that NASA would be too happy with them saying, yeah, we're going to go to the Ariane 6 now. Uh, what? No, we planned this for the Ariane 5, can we just stick with that? I understand what what you're saying, but I can understand why NASA might not be too happy with that. Yeah. I mean, unless they can do something like guarantee... the the mounting bracket or whatever
3: yeah some kind of retrofit
1: yeah but otherwise i can understand if nasa is going to be like "Mm, no don't think so so yeah i mean it's i was and i was mistaken before it's set for a 2021 launch but uh the guy even said that if it was a program that did not have high scientific potential and the u.s leadership aspects or whatever i think it would be canceled the fact that he's willing to say, yeah, if this wasn't so important, we probably would have canceled it because of what we're seeing here. NASA needs to take a closer look at, at future prospects.
3: Yeah, that's for sure. If they
1: figured that the James Webb is going to weigh that much that they need an Ariane 5, they're almost certainly going to go for the four-engine Ariane 6 mm-hmm. as a potential replacement. And according to this, it's not even scheduled to be launched until possibly after the James Webb goes up. So, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say they're going to stick with the Ariane 5.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. NASA has revealed the names of 88 new constellations, and it's good news if you're a bit of a geek. (laughs) The Space Agency has named many of the new constellations after famous characters, objects, including the TARDIS, the Little Prince, Godzilla, the Hulk, and the USS Enterprise. The new constellations were devised using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope to celebrate the Fermi mission's 10th anniversary. Julie McInery, a Fermi project scientist, said developing these unofficial constellations was a fun way to highlight a decade of Fermi's accomplishments. One way or another, all of the Gamma Ray constellations have a tie-in with Fermi space. Since 2008, the Fermi's Large Area Telescope has scanned the skies every day, mapping and measuring gamma rays, the highest energy of light in the universe. Elizabeth Ferreira, who led the Constellation Project, said by 2015, the number of different sources mapped by Fermi's LAT had expanded to about 3,000. That's 10 times the number of known sources before the mission. For the first time, the number of known gamma-ray sources was comparable to the number of bright stars. So we thought a new set of constellations was a great way to illustrate that point. Some of the new constellations have been named after famous landmarks, such as Sweden's recovered warship, the Vasa. There's one called the Washington Monument, and there's one called Mount Fuji, which is in Japan. Other represents nature and scientific ideas or tools, including Albert Einstein radio telescope and a black widow spider. Uh. So this is something that we've kind of embraced on TGP Nominal and on the monthly star guide we've been asking listeners and uh, people who are in the UK Astronomy Facebook group to come up with new names for different things and we've we've come up with a couple. Obviously you've got the Johnny Five cluster (laughs) But is it alive? (laughs) It certainly is Uh, You've got the knickknack nebula, which is named after a, um, a corn snack in the UK, <laughs> it just looks like this wibbly wobbly sticky thing. <laughs> and we've also renamed the canine major and canine mm-hmm. minor. Right, right. Well, one of them is supposed to represent the dog, but the other one is just basically two stars forming a line. So we've said that can't be a dog, it's somebody who's thrown the stick so the dog will <laughs> fetch it.
1: <laughs> uh, huh. Wait, wait. So someone was going to make a dog constellation out of two stars? Yeah. Hello? Really?
3: <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> uh,
1: w- was the person who suggested that in one of those states that now a law legalized marijuana use?
3: <laughs> what? That could be anything. You do look at some of these constellations and go, really? Yeah. Well, how I know, how yeah. did they get that from that? But yeah, wow. some of these are looking really good. Uh, out there these gamma ray constellations and um, i'm gonna have to find a source of looking at all of them there must be an infographic or something somewhere with them all on there so that'll be interesting to see so hopefully i'll have that in the show notes Uh, actually uh, i don't know if you remember me telling you about a tv show we had over here called space cadets And it was a reality show where they put these people through the tests to see if they were gullible enough to believe anything that we threw at them. And then they were told that they were going to go to Russia to train to be cosmonauts. Well... They weren't sent to Russia. They were at a disused air base in Suffolk in the UK, <laughs> which had a Russian writing all over the place, and, and they got actors in to pretend to be Russian specialists in sp- space and this, that, and the other. Uh, and they were supposed to believe that they were going to be launched into space. And uh, so they were being taught about astronomy and things. And one of the things... <laughs> that they were told that there is this area in space called the Hazelnut Cluster. Now, that is obviously taken from some kind of breakfast cereal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They believed it. And they also believed that they had sorted out a way of making a false gravity whilst they were on this spacecraft. Otherwise, how are you going to fake... A space shuttle that hasn't actually taken off the ground. <laughs>
1: In fairness, though, let, let's be honest. We've seen so much Star Trek and so much Star Trek science converted to reality. And we also know things about, you know, if you have a spinning object and you are on the outside of that spinning object, that would simulate gravity like 2001. Okay, the Hazelnut Cluster was a bit out there, but <laughs> the rest of it is at least plausible. You could always argue, well, not with our current technology... But then all you have to do is just think, how
3: much does the government do that we don't know about? Obviously, they had to have these tests before they got accepted into the TV show, and they weren't allowed to have any savvy whatsoever about space.
1: Okay, never mind. (laughs) I I, I back down. (laughs) Did they at least do something more plausible, like, okay, we're going to fly you to Russia, so put them into an airplane and then just have them fly out to, like, Norway and back?
3: Well, no, they just flew around the UK about a few times. They blacked out the windows on the plane. They took all their watches and stuff off them so they had no idea what time scale was. And then they just flew around a few times, landed at this disused airbase where these guys dressed up as Russian soldiers with big guard dogs and this, that, and the other came at them and started barking things at them in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> and they spent six weeks at this airbase thinking that they were in Russia right and then the team got whittled down to the the amount that they needed for going in the spacecraft and it was designed by Hollywood special effects people they had very high definition screens that made it look like you could see the curvature of the earth and everything and, and the, the host of the show was going I was just dreading it if one day they were looking at this screen and a moth landed on it I thought they're being invaded by these aliens <laughs> <laughs> the people that made it through to the end actually won, I think they got £25,000 to making it to the end. That's cool. And they also got a trip on the Vomit Comet and got to visit Star City as well. Okay, that's pretty cool. Pretty much worth it at the end of it. Yeah. It's easier for us to sit back and laugh at that sort
1: of thing. Like, I can't believe they don't understand any... But if it's as you said that they really had no clue
3: about space. Can you blame them? One of them was pretty devastated that he wasn't going to go into space. I think the the actual prize at the end of it made up for that, I think. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> not everybody gets to go on the Vomit Comet and goes to go to Star City and, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, oh,
1: I'd love to go on the Vomit Comet. Just leave it at that. That, that would be amazing.
3: <laughs> for those who don't know what the
1: Vomit Comet is, <laughs> let's explain that one to them. It's the aircraft that's used, it flies in a parabolic formation, so for certain amounts of time, it simulates anti-gravity. You're actually free-falling, but the airplane is free-falling with you, so it simulates anti-gravity environments, and then they land on the floor, and then they take you back up, and then they do it over again.
3: When they were filming Apollo 13... All those scenes that you saw where they're in weightlessness were done on one of these planes. So you Mm -hmm. can imagine how many times they actually had to do Oh, man. That plane got so many hours. Yeah. You can probably understand why they call it the Vomit Comet, because if your stomach is not ready for this kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. there will possibly be an opportunity where you might need to use a sick bag. So... Actually, when you go on it, well, it used to be this way. I don't know if it's still the same. If you make it through to the end, you get a free gift, which is a sick bag. And the sick bag actually says, I survived the vomit comet.
1: (laughs) Nice. That'd be worth it. That would be (laughs) worth it. I would. I'd do that in a heartbeat. No question. No question. Both the Dawn mission, which was going around the asteroid belt, and of course the Kepler- Planet Hunter, both are pretty much out of commission now because they both ran out of fuel. Uh, they're, they're both powered by hydrazine, basically to keep the antennas pointed toward Earth, and they ran out. So unfortunately, neither of them can now point their antennas. They probably still have power, but we can't get the signal. So both missions are effectively dead, and it happened just a f- Actually, no, it wasn't even a few days. It was like the next day, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because one was on Halloween, and the other one was the day after. So Kepler is well. It's simply going to be up there. It's so far out. There's really not much that can be done with it. It's, it's certainly not going to be able to come back down into the atmosphere. And Dawn is currently orbiting around Ceres in the asteroid belt because it's the biggest item out there, and it's going to be out there for a few more decades, just orbiting.
3: Yeah, it, it is sad, but there are other things out there. Well, will be we other things out there that will be able to cover kepler for example they're not necessarily going in the same direction but they yeah they've got things that they want to get out to like andromeda and and places like that so there are contingency plans out there uh, so the strange thing about everything that happened there you as you said, you yeah kepler you had dawn all happened around the same time as the problem with the Soyuz and the problem with the hubble yeah all around the same time which was really weird did you hear about what they had to do with hubble too
1: Yeah. They effectively had to do a computer reboot. Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? (laughs) It was started up on October 6th after the gyro had been off for seven and a half years, but that didn't show any performance in the improvement. So then they had the the Hubble perform a whole bunch of maneuvers and turns and changing in the opposite direction and so forth to clear out any blockage that might have been causing the gyroscope to be off-center. (laughs) <laughs> but during each maneuver, the gyro switched modes to dislodge any blockages that it might have accumulated. They executed a running restart of the, of the one failed gyro on October 16th. They turned it off for one second and restarted it before it could spin down. Uh, and that was to try to clear out any faults that there might have been in the system. That's kind of what works with PCs. You know, you try to restart it. Okay, it didn't work. Something is still wrong. Okay, let me go in and reseat the memory oh, it works.
3: <laughs> it's just so weird, isn't it?
1: It's just nuts. So, they I mean, they did have contingency plans, but obviously having more gyros is going to keep it a lot more stable. So it's good that they got that thing going, but it's just funny the way that they did that. And granted, that might be oversimplifying the process, but the only thing that came into my mind is, okay, what's NASA's equivalent of Control-Alt-Delete? Because you know? <laughs> they basically did what you do to fix PCs. Shut it off. Didn't work. Okay. Let's redo the connections. Oh, it worked. (laughs) But hey, you know, Hubble is still going. That's all that counts.
3: The other good thing about that is about a couple of days after they actually got Hubble up and running again, Hubble, well, it actually captured a stunning image of a massive shadow cast by a planet forming Mm -hmm. disk over 1,300 light years away. This feature, nicknamed the Bat Shadow, was spotted in a stellar nursery known as the Serpent's Nebula. Now, this is really enormous. According to NASA, the distant bat shadow stretched roughly 200 times the length of our solar system. The effect shown in the, the new Hubble photo is much like a fly that wanders into a uh, flashlight's beam. Right. It, it was captured using Hubble's near-infrared camera. Now, they're also actually calling this the Batman symbol. Um <laughs> It does kind of look like it. I'll have to dig out the photograph of it. But, uh, yeah, quite impressive considering, you know, a couple of days beforehand, Hubble wasn't actually operational. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, we obviously love our Hubble very much here. Hopefully, I think we'll just keep going and going and going. I mean, remember back in, uh, I think it was August, when NASA re- released a single photo that had 15,000 galaxies
3: in it? <laughs> That was amazing
1: You know, people think we're so special down here It's like, no, with respect to the cosmos We are nothing I hope that thing just keeps going and going and going I'd love to see the stuff that gets produced With both the Hubble and the James Webb telescope Combining their data
3: Let's hope we can keep it going (laughs) I hope so Whilst James Webb is still waiting to be launched
1: Yeah, I hope so
3: Well, whilst we're talking about things that have stopped working and then started working again, the Curiosity Rover, NASA's Curiosity Rover, Mm -hmm. stopped moving for a while. It got stuck. There was a few problems on board. Now, it's recently driven about 190 feet or 60 metres during the first weekend of November to a site called Lake... I think it's Orcadie, O-R-C-A-D-I-E. This was... Curiosity's longest drive since experience a memory anomaly on September the 15th, so it hasn't actually moved since September the mm-hmm. 15th. After more than two weeks of science operations, and now with this latest drive, the mission is back in business. The team plans to drill a new target later this month. Curiosity's engineering team at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory commanded the Curiosity rover to switch to its second computer. Like many NASA spacecraft, Curiosity was designed with two redundant computers, in this case referred to as Side A and Side B, so that it can continue operations if one experiences a glitch. After reviewing several operations, the JPL engineers recommended that the rover switch from side B to side A, which is the computer the rover used initially after landing. The rover continues to send limited engineering data stored in short-term memory when it connects to the relay orbiter. It's otherwise healthy and receiving commands, but whatever is preventing Curiosity from storing science data in the long-term memory is also preventing the storage of the rover's event records, a journal of all the actions that the engineers need in order to make a diagnosis. The computer swap will allow the data and event records to be stored on the Side A computer. At this point, we're confident we're getting back to full operations, but it's too early to say how soon, said Stephen Lee, Curiosity's Deputy Project Manager. We're operating on side B starting today, but it could take us some time to fully understand the root of the cause of the issue and devise workarounds for the memory on side B. We spent last week checking out side A and preparing for the swap. It's certainly possible to run the mission on side A, if we really need to but our plan is to switch back to side b as soon as we can because it's got a larger memory size it's amazing now some of these fixes are just pretty simple things to do i mean to us it's probably not that simple but yeah
1: <laughs> did you see that uh, jpl put out plans for basically anyone to build your own little rover? Um, I think I saw something briefly on that. It's not a small thing. It weighs 25 pounds. It's made out of metal. And and so the brain is a Raspberry Pi. It's actually cool. It's got this little color LED screen to use as a face sort of thing. If you want to do that. The only thing about it, I was looking through it and there's a lot of 3D printing involved. And their estimate is that it should cost roughly $2,500 in parts to put this thing together. I was like, wow. Really, guys? That's not exactly something that anybody can just go and do. That was a little disappointing.
3: Maybe it's a a school project or something. Maybe a school
1: project, yeah. But, I mean, they include everything. The the schematics, uh, the STL files for 3D printing, the parts that you need to do it. They talk about how you can order it and roughly how much they cost and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, as a school project, I thought it was cool. I was like, wow, guys, this isn't something you'd want to do for your family. Uh, so yeah. If I was going to spend this much money on some kind of a robot, I'd be building my own R2-D2 astromac. <laughs> so, I mean, it was cool. And you can get it right from JPL and everything is open sourced. Like I said, the cost for it is a little bit, uh, I don't know about that. But it's still cool if you look at it. So that's opensourcerover.jpl.nasa.gov. It, it's cool to at least look at and think of, you know, Maybe if you hit a small lottery, this is something you might be able to do.
3: Space. The final
2: frontier.
3: These are the
2: voyages of TGP Nominal and its infinite mission to explore space, science, and technology news. To explore the world of sci-fi, comic con, and gaming to
1: boldly go where no podcast has gone before
3: Do you remember a Kickstarter program that was set up by Space Center Houston to restore its uh, Apollo-era mission control? I do. Well, the Mission Control Operations control room consoles have been fully refurbished and returned to Houston on uh, one of NASA's Super Guppy cargo aircraft. Ten of the push-button screen-line cabinets were unloaded from the bulbless nose aircraft at Ellington Airport, which is not far from Johnson Space Centre, after spending 10 months being cleaned, repaired and equipped with new internal electronics. Truly these consoles represent the crown, jewel and centrepiece of our restoration efforts, said Jim Thornton, manager of NASA's Apollo Mission Control. It's a great opportunity to honour our legacy, added Thornton. We are coming up to the 50th anniversary the golden anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing and we want to return this National Historic Landmark to the glory of those days and preserve it for generations to come. A group of Apollo flight controllers including the INCO or the Instrumentation and Communications Officer Ed Fendel, and the ECOM, the Electrical, Environmental and Consumables Manager Bill Moon Bill Moon, What a great name for that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and the electrical power systems con- controller Jim Kelly were at hand at Ellington to get a first look at their former work desks. As conservators from the Cosmosphere Spaceworks Restoration Division unwrapped the Capcom, the capsule communicator, and the flight surgeon stations, the retirees crowded round these machines to have a look at them the Apollo program and more importantly the men and women who made it happen should be remembered for the historic accomplishments they they made said Mark Geyer the director of the Johnson Space Centre it's terrific that we're restoring the Apollo mission control back to the time of Apollo so people can see it and let it be a a fitting reminder of that historic time the consoles will be held in temporary storage as work inside the mission control centre is complete if you could see the the room today, the ceiling has to be ripped out two rows of consoles are still there they need to be removed and sent to kansas for a restoration there's a lot of work to be done still i mean there's carpets and seating and wallpaper and god knows what else they've got to get together to make it as close to how it was back then getting some of those bits and pieces together is not going to be easy matching no it. no but to see these actual consoles back to their former glory It's fantastic to see, and I've got some pictures of it so that we can put it in the show notes so people can have a look at it.
1: This is the equipment that landed men on the moon.
3: Why was this not taken care of better?
1: This should have been noted as being a very historical thing right from the start. I I guess in retrospect, it's just so easy to say, why did they do that? But I guess all that matters is that it's been restored and they're going to bring it back and that's all good.
3: And it's got the seal of approval from the guys that actually use these consoles. That's great.
1: I'd be curious to see if there's any behind the scenes for the actual restoration process. Like, how much did they have to code it? Obviously, any circuitry that was in there, those... Well, those chips might have been good. You never know. You know, did they have to reprogram anything? And if so, how did they do it? You know, because... Let's say that a a chip or two failed. Do they have the source code to reprogram that chip? You know, that sort
3: of thing. I'd I'd be really curious to see the behind the scenes for restoring this. Oh, there's definitely a documentary in there somewhere. There's got to be. That would be interesting to watch. (laughs) Well, I got another kind of feel good story. We were worried about what was going
1: to happen to the Arecibo Observatory because of Hurricane Maria and how it decimated it in, in a lot of ways. Well, not only are they going to keep it going, but they are getting a $5.8 million upgrade. So the National Science Foundation has awarded a team, $5.8 million to design and mount a super sensitive antenna at the focal point. Because remember, the original antenna collapsed yeah. and ended up going through the dish. So this is going to replace that. So this is going to be managed by the University of Central Florida. They say that this will increase the telescope's observation capabilities 500%. Wow. So according to Francisco Cordova, who's the site director, he said, we already have one of the most powerful telescopes on the planet, and with this award, we will be able to do even more. We are very excited with the award to fund the new ALPACA receiver at the Arecibo Observatory. Yes, it's an acronym.
3: (laughs) Can you get any more South American than ALPACA as a name for something? (laughs) The the whole thing, oh God, Advanced Cryogenic
1: L-Band Phased Array Camera for Arecibo. Okay. They must come up with the acronym first and find a way to wedge a term into it. (laughs) Please, guys, can we please take SpaceX, for an example, and say STOP with the
3: acronyms? Even ESA, with the name of their their stuff, is always named after somebody or something. This
1: receiver, which is the next generation of our most used receiver, will be able to increase the survey speed by a factor of five. The receiver will accelerate research in gravitational waves, fast radio bursts, dark matter, and pulsar surveys ensuring that the Arecibo Observatory continues to be at the forefront of radio astronomy for years to come. The thing is going to have 166 antennas and will increase the field of view of the telescope to 40 beams, as they call it, which will provide more coverage than most other receivers. So they're expecting this to be installed by 2022. So, yeah, any concern that we had about that being shut down? Mm, not happening and in fact that's a that's a substantial upgrade to it
3: yeah definitely the arecibo as we've always said on this to give you an idea of how big this thing is already james bond golden eye the dish that's in that film that is this space telescope it's huge
1: that was filmed on site yeah
3: Let's get some numbers for those who don't, who for whatever reason
1: don't watch that. <laughs> its diameter is 1,000 feet or 300 meters, and it's got a collection area of 790,000 square feet or 73,000 square meters. That thing is a monster, and it's about to get five times more
3: sensitive. That's just amazing. That is mind blowing. I love yeah. it. And as we were saying, it, it needed to be preserved. And there was a um, like a syndicate, wasn't there, of different people wanting to get mm-hmm. in to try and save it. And yeah. it sounds like well, I, I don't think there's anybody who's into astronomy and uh, and that kind of thing that didn't want to save it. So yeah. it, it would have been stupid just to let it disintegrate. <laughs> When SpaceX starts ferrying astronauts to and from the International Space Station next year, the company's ocean vessel, known as Go Searcher, will be tasked at recovering SpaceX's crew Dragon Capsules that splash down in the Atlantic Ocean. The end of this summer, SpaceX gave GoSearcher a suite of upgrades, including the addition of a helipad to make sure that the boat can swiftly recover Dragon Capsules that carry astronauts back to Earth. During an ideal mission, go Searcher will lift the Crew Dragon out of the water by a crane attached to the end of the boat according to NASA. The capsule will then be hauled onto the deck of go Searcher and the astronauts will be evaluated by doctors from SpaceX and NASA. But if something goes awry during the landing astronauts can be airlifted directly off the boat via helicopter and taken to hospital. The helicopter will also carry medical emergency personnel that way the doctors can be on hand at every step of the way to help the astronauts that might need to be evacuated quickly from the capsule the first of spacex crew dragon flights is slated for january 2019 and the crew dragon will be empty for that mission but if the vehicle's key systems check out okay the uncrewed test flight will then be followed by a crewed one on a schedule for june 2019 at the same time, NASA's other commercial crew partner Boeing is uh, scheduled to fly its capsule, the uh, CST 100 Starliner, for the first time without a crew in March 2019, with a crewed launch set for August. However, Starliner is designed to land on the ground, so there's no need for a recovery boat. On a similar note, In order to ensure that they remain competitive, Blue Origin indicated that it will be following SpaceX's lead by recovering its first stage rocket boosters at sea. So the company has acquired a used Danish vessel known as the Stena Freighter, which has recently arrived in Florida. Much like SpaceX's autonomous spaceport drone ships, this vessel will be used to retrieve the spent rockets after they deliver their cargo into space. The purchase of the Stena Freighter was announced in August of this year. Since that time, the vessel has made its journey from Spain to Pensacola in Florida, where it berthed on October the 20th. There it will remain in dry dock and receive upgrades before being delivered to Blue Origins facilities at Port Canaveral in Florida. Yeah, Stena is a, a big European company. They do cargo vessels, but they specialize in ferries cross-channel ferries and that kind of thing. It's quite a big vessel. It's it's bigger than the drone ships, but um, they're not autonomous. These things are huge, and they need to have people controlling them on board. So that will make a difference with more safety issues to deal with. (laughs) That's all right. That's okay. So whilst we're on the topic of SpaceX, SpaceX may be about to reuse a Falcon 9 first stage booster for the third time. This will be the first time a booster has been used more than twice for missions. The SSOA launch could prove the resilience of the Block 5 booster and may pave the way for more ambitious launches. The Block 5 is expected to serve 10 launches per booster with minor checks and 100 launches with refurbishments. Now, the SSOA launch, which is dubbed Smallsat Express, <laughs> will be the largest single rideshare mission from a US-based launch vehicle to date. A company called Spaceflight Industries has contracted 64 spacecraft from 34 different organisations for the mission. It includes 15 microsats and 49 cubesats from both commercial and government entities of which more than 25 of them are from international organisations from 17 countries, including America, Australia, Italy, Netherlands, Finland, South Korea, Spain, Switzerland, UK, Germany, Jordan, Kazakhstan, Thailand, Poland, Canada, Brazil and India. Among the spacecraft on board are 23 of them from universities, 19 of them are imaging satellites, 23 are technology demonstrations there's one art exhibit and one is from a middle school so I had a look into what the school students had actually put together for the mission. The kids are from the Weiss School, which is a pre-kindergarten through to 8th grade private school in Florida. And they have come up with a CubeSat called the WeissSat1 to test the viability of aerobic and anaerobic bacteria that has been thawed after being entrapped in ice, which often happens on comets when nearing the sun in low Earth orbit. The program received a grant from NASA's CubeSat Launch Initiative, which is funding the rideshare launch of the SSO Stroke A. The initiative provides access to space CubeSats developed by educational institutions, which is really cool. I'll put up a, a link to everything that's involved in this project because there's a lot more than what I've just read out there. There's a lot involved in it. Then I had a look at the art project. It's a collaboration between the Nevada Museum of Art and an artist called Trevor Paglen, and it's called the Orbiter Reflector. The Orbiter Reflector is a sculpture constructed of a lightweight material similar to Mylar, which will be an orbiting sculpture visible from the Earth with the naked eye. A little bit like... Do you remember Rocket Lab did that Humanity Star? Yes. mm -hmm, A bit like a disco ball in space. (laughs) Yeah. Um... And appear in the night sky with tracking systems to allow observers to follow it when it will appear overhead in their area, which is pretty much what they did with the uh, humanity star as well. The sculpture will launch on a CubeSat and once dispensed into proper low Earth orbit, a hundred foot reflective balloon will deploy. This is the portion that will reflect the light and be visible for Earth. The artwork is not permanent. It will deorbit in a few months and burn up into the atmosphere, leaving no trace behind and no space debris. So there's a lot going on on that launch. Just a little bit. Good grief. (laughs) A lot of projects, you know. I looked into it a little bit, and I thought I need to look into this a little bit. And I was just blown away with the amount of stuff that's just going to be on one launch. <laughs> this is the future, really—the the CubeSats and the the microSats and all this kind of stuff. It's cost efficient. Oh yeah, and a good way of getting it out these rideshare programs. Fantastic. I'm going to put a bit of information up there about the uh, the different stuff. Uh, I'll put a link to Spaceflight Industries. Their website is actually really good because they give you a profile of all the people involved with it, and it's very comprehensive to look at. So, yeah, I'll put a link up to, to that. It's pretty amazing stuff. To think that CubeSat is, what did they describe it as? So something like the size of a loaf of bread, isn't it? It's that mm-hmm. kind of... Yeah that to give you an idea um a, a large shoebox, if you like
1: small piece of lug like a, like a carry-on a, car- yeah. a carry-on for an airplane that's probably the best way to look at it yeah
3: and then you've got the microsats which are a, a bit smaller than that and as i said they're getting schools involved with these projects and the experiments that the kids are coming up with are amazing
1: i'm on the raspberry pi uh, mailing list obviously and uh, so I get a lot of their emails and stuff they do. Now Raspberry Pi is based primarily in England and it's so cool to see all of the things that they do over there to get students involved with the Raspberry Pi. I, I have yet to see anything like that over here. Yeah we have maker fairs and so forth but it's it's not the same thing.
3: And that was pretty much down to Tim Peake, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> his project, his Principia mission, was all about getting kids to do coding and stuff with his version of the Raspberry Pi that he had up on the space station, which was called the Astro Pi, mm-hmm. which was a bit more hard wearing and uh, heavy duty. But the kids were sending their code that they'd done on their Raspberry Pis and, and things sent up to the ISS and he was running their programs he was running their code and it got the kids yeah. interested in this stuff well one of the things that i got for my son
1: it's this little robot car that i don't it's it's like arduino based and it might have like a raspberry pi 0 to it I'd have to take a look at the actual specs, but you build it all from scratch and it provides the code on CD for you to program this thing. And it's basically this little robot car that you have to wire up yourself. And I don't mean like those big, colorful plastic blocks for toddlers. I mean, this is actually, it's a decent sized little robot kit and it's got all the small wires that anybody who's worked with the raspberry pi knows all about so that was only 70 bucks
3: i'll tell you what i have seen recently (laughs) over here i I know they've done stuff in the past but it's an advent calendar which is made by the haynes manual people (laughs) (laughs) we know how much you hate them (laughs) and in each door has a little Electronic project. You know, you know like those kits that you used to get with the 50 electronic project? Oh, my God, yes. Yes, Radio yes. Shack was notorious for those. It's like that, but each door has got a project that you can do. So you've got a different project every day leading up to Christmas. And then on the 24th, you get a bigger thing. I think it's like uh, a, a radio or something like that that you can construct. It's about 20 quid, which is not a lot of money for something like that. Yeah, 25 bucks. Hmm. I thought it was really cool. I thought, you know, it's a nice little thing for kids getting started into electronics and things. It's great.
1: Actually, for my daughter, who's also, she was really having fun with it when I was toying around with my Raspberry Pi. You know, the folks at Raspberry Pi have this starter kit. It comes with a magazine and so forth. It comes with a Raspberry Pi Zero and wires and some other things to it. And it's, you know, it's meant for kids to get started with the Raspberry Pi. And I know she's already interested in it. So I figured, you know what? I'm gonna get this for her. And I'll bet she's gonna go nuts with it. At this point, you can cue the original Star Trek theme song. Of course, we'll probably get a takedown if we have that done. So we probably shouldn't do that. But astronomers have discovered Vulcan. It was done completely by accident they have discovered that there is an exoplanet orbiting star 40 Eridani A, which, according to Star Trek lore, that is an actual real star, If you you know, you can find it, but that is known as the home star of Vulcan. So it's 16 light years away from Earth over in the constellation Eridanus, and they weren't even looking for a planet when suddenly it's like, hey, here I am, see it directly like you would have, you know, maybe with, uh, seen something more with Kepler and so forth. But its presence was at least inferred based on subtle movements of the host star in response to the exoplanet's gravitational field and moving across its path. And it was actually found by the uh, Dharma Endowment Foundation Telescope, which is down in southern Arizona. They said that it's about twice the size of Earth and is considered to be the closest super-Earth orbiting a sun-like star. For now, it's known simply as a very generic HD 26965b. You know, those are the naming guidelines that are set up, but they are going to contact the union to ask that the planet be called Vulcan. <laughs> well, why not? Let's face it, that is quite logical, because that is the star that would be attributed to Vulcan. It is a planet and besides star trek is probably the one series more than any others that got people excited about the potential of other planets yeah so it all makes sense so they say it is likely to have an atmosphere and chances are it's going to be tidally locked so that one side will always face the sun one side will always face away but that actually kind of makes sense because vulcans it was a very hot planet so a lot of vulcans actually lived in caves or they lived underground, it actually does kind of make sense. <laughs> That's one of those things, especially with th- they weren't even looking for it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, there it is. There's a planet around that star. What the heck? We'll call it Vulcan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? So you know, whether there's life there, well, I mean, it is in the habitable zone. You never know. Sadly, we don't even have warp technology yet, so we couldn't attract their attention if we wanted to.
3: I'm still annoyed that they never got around to calling one of the new uh, elements for the periodic table after Lemmy from uh, Motorhead. (laughs) Because it has to be named after a scientist or something like that. So, yeah, they wouldn't accept Lemmium as a heavy metal. they got to have some fun with it. Come on. Oh, well. (laughs) And and it's one of these ones that kids would have remembered as well when they're trying to learn the table.
1: (laughs) Okay, before we go. You probably heard this on my podcast but i don't know if you actually went to see it but there's an animation out there from taiko studios called one small step did you happen to go
3: see that i haven't i've heard of it but oh you I...
1: have you want to talk about somebody's cutting onions this is the one to do it it's a small animation it's only like eight minutes long but it, it's about an american girl whose father is chinese and her mother is dead apparently but i'm assuming she's chinese as well and it's just she has this dream about becoming an astronaut and that's what it's all about and just the struggle that she had to do that, the problems that she ran into, it's, it's more heartwarming than anything else. You've got to see it. You, you will be cutting onions when you watch this one, even if you don't have onions in front of you. The animation is gorgeous, the story is wonderful. There's no speech in it at all, but it doesn't need it because everything is handled through the visuals. And that's over at Vimeo and it's called One Small Step. It's from Tycho Studios. You've got to see it. You've absolutely got to see
3: that. Strange you should say that. I've put it up on the Facebook page for TGP Nominal. There is a commercial that's come out for Christmas, and it's by a uh, company called Very. And this commercial is basically about a little girl who her parents bought her something when she was small, which inspired her to go on to greater things. And what this thing was, was a toy astronaut's helmet. And she loved space and she went to school and she was teaching other kids about space and things. Went on to university, went from there, became an astronaut. And Mm -hmm. it's basically telling you to buy something for somebody that inspires them to inspire others. So it's along the same premise then. Yeah there are some usually some really good christmas commercials on mm-hmm. on uk tv um and this one for me has stood out <laughs> for that reason so watch and-
1: one then watch the other that's what we're telling all of our pretty listeners. much watch so- one wipe your eyes calm down a bit then watch the next one
3: <laughs> it did hit me a little bit emotionally because i can relate to it but I don't think it's going to be as emotional as the the one you're talking about.
1: One small step, it's fantastic. You will definitely get hit in the feels.
3: Spamhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, Fox Pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spamhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content Tend to sound and we will do the rest we can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too visit us now spamheadproductions.weebly.com that's spamheadproductions.weebly.com so john it's always good to get you back on the show oh it's always good for you to put up with me one more time <laughs> And we're coming closer and closer to our Christmas show. But I'm kinda try and combine the two podcasts together. So it's gonna be a TGP stroke garbage pod Christmas crossover thing. <laughs> Fair enough. (laughs) Um, I've got some interviews that I'm going to be doing with a couple of people that uh, I want to include in the proceedings and hopefully get some other people in on the show again. See if I can get Liz back on the show, Mm -hmm. which will be fun, because Liz is always fun to have around. Yeah, so look forward to the Christmas show. All that leaves me to say is take care one and all. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod
2: at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output.
1: Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com.
3: If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theatre
1: for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't
3: forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us